So there are like layers in the concept of enclosed cognition. And the first layer is getting to comfort. Like if you're not able to walk in your like clothes or if you feel that something is itchy, there's no way you can feel confident. The second layer is related to fit and feel. So you want something that fits nicely on you, that highlights your waist, that makes you feel skinnier, that makes you feel taller. And at the top of the pyramid, and this is like the most interesting concept to me, is falling into an iconic pattern. Today on Things Have Changed, we are joined by founder and CEO of Reclaim, Zana Nanich. From a young age, Zana has always been involved in running a business from helping grow her family's apparel company in Italy to launching products for Uber and Google. With an expertise in retail branding, Zana is disrupting the fashion industry with Reclaim, a clothing company that utilizes enclosed cognition to empower women's fashion in the professional world. In this episode, we learn exactly how enclosed cognition works, the history of fashion in Milan, Italy, and Zana's hustle story of applying past experiences to Reclaim. An engineer, banker, and dancer go on a hike. They realize how things have changed and start a podcast. Hi, I'm Jed, the banker. I'm Shikhar, the engineer. And I'm Adrian, the dancer. And we are THC. We break down topics, meet pioneers, and share ideas. Welcome to Things Have Changed. The Reclaim story actually has a clear pinpoint in time. I remember I was changing jobs, so I used to work in consulting, which is a very formal industry. What you're supposed to wear is very defined, like everybody knows what a business formal outfit is. And then suddenly I got hired for, like I was hired at Uber, in the Italian market, and it was kind of like an upgrade for me. I was going from an analyst, bottom of the pyramid role, to a managing role where I had my team. I was like the youngest person, and I had to tell people who were older and more experienced than me what they were supposed to do. And I remember my first day there, and when I interviewed, I saw what people were wearing, and it was a pretty casual, laid-back, startup environment. So like jeans, sneakers, like some normal t-shirts. So very laid back. And I remember showing up on my first day wearing that outfit and just looking myself in the mirror and being like, okay, last time I wore this, I was 14 years old. <laughs> like, this is not going to work. Like, I already have a huge imposter syndrome because I need to, like, manage a team and, like, bossy people around. And then I'm, like, looking at myself and I feel zero prepared. Like, I've, like, my confidence level is so low. So I remember being like, okay. How can I feel confident while I'm wearing business casual? What does that even mean? It's like a problem I ignored because in consulting, that was never like I had a very clear Monday to Friday uniform. And then my weekend was just my own personality. So I had to spend significant time just like researching stores, putting together what were some looks that made me feel strong. And then I discovered this paper that Northwestern University did about a concept called enclosed cognition that there are certain colors or certain fits, like certain like typical, like iconic outfits that just make you feel more confident as a woman. So Reclaim was literally the beginning of my wardrobe. Like I created for myself a little capsule wardrobe. 
with all the learnings, uh, like what makes me feel confident, what makes me feel strong and powerful. And I put together like what was my wardrobe. And then little by little, people just came up to me and were like, oh, I really like what you wear. What is it? How is it? So it started a little bit like that, just telling people, giving advice. And then at Stanford, where I did my MBA two years later, it became Reclaim, a real company. So that was kind of like the origin story from imposter syndrome. <laughs> is it is it then reclaiming your identity and your confidence? Yeah. Okay. So the concept, like the name I picked, Reclaim, is a very strong word. Like It's like about reclaiming your power, your femininity. Like it's like a very strong verb. It's not like a like it's something that you're supposed to hear and like feel like okay, I'm a badass. I'm gonna go and reclaim. <laughs> yeah. What am I reclaiming to be defined? There but it's go. up to you to define what is like important to you. This ethos is very much in the clothes. So all the clothes are first of all like reclaim your time. All the clothes are like super easy. None of them is like dry clean none of them is like you have to iron everything is like done in a way that is like practical for a working woman for a mom like you don't want to like waste time caring for your clothes and then everything is done in like three shades of color so you don't have to worry about oh what goes with what how do i mix and match this everything is made in a way that whatever you pick from the reclaim wardrobe is going to look nice on you so the idea is just like reclaiming your sanity in this sense and and like everything has pockets so when you're like on the office on the go like one of the big themes and you're old men on this call but so you're not fully aware of it but women clothing doesn't have pockets it's kind of like a stigma just the fashion industry assume oh women have purses so they don't really need pockets and so historically oh. that is what happened so like women clothing all have like fake pockets so which and it like starts from a very early age. If you try to like shop for kids' clothing, you're gonna see all boys' pants are like cargo pants. They're like 15 pockets everywhere <laughs> for like anything, twist knives included. And then women's are like tights with no pockets whatsoever. So it's just an industry standard that a lot of companies like Reclaim or like modern startups that are for female empowerment are trying to change. So it's pretty interesting. Well, you touched on this a bit, but were you looking at certain trends to leverage while you started this, while you were looking at what's being offered out there and decided, okay, maybe I'm going to use this and this, maybe the material? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I started Reclaim because I was a shopper first. Before being a founder and a fashion designer, I was a customer. And I remember looking out there and trying to find what's work appropriate. The amount of searches I've done of like, what's business casual? What outfit do you wear for work? Like I've exhausted page 25 on Google. <laughs> so literally like I've done a lot of homework. And a couple of things I was seeing. The first trend is, is that like the formal business, in, business formal industry, it's little by little disappearing. So if you take like the women's suit, it used to be a $2 billion market in the United States. And now it's like 25% of that. So within four or five years, 75% of the sales just disappeared. And then a lot of jobs that used to be very formal, like finance and banking, you see that women's style is relaxing. And I think that's like the Silicon Valley way of just getting into other industries. Because Silicon Valley started this idea of business casual. 
and here is a little bit extreme, mm -hmm. but yeah. like a lot of industries started this pullover effect. So like, like guys would not try not to wear a tie if possible. And women, because the, the code, like the uniform isn't like amazingly defined, sometimes also like dress it down a little bit. So in general, like the need, like the business casual concept started to emerge and companies like, like an Ann Taylor or a Banana Republic that are known for being, oh, that's my workwear brand. Like when I interview people my age, like in their mid twenties, early thirties, associated those companies with like their mom's generation. Like they were not excited about shopping there. There was almost like an identity crisis. Like the, like the things I was hearing from my early customers were like, I don't know what these companies stand for. Like, I don't know what they believe in, what their values are, like where they make their clothes. So I was like, okay, it's very clear that the millennial customer and the Gen Z customer wants to say something new. Like there is, it's a good moment to like come into this industry and be part of this change. On the website, I was looking at like the whole yoga plan, workifying that and then other trends like sustainability and, and just being ethically made. Everyone wear like Lulu stuff. It's like literally everywhere. So has that been something that you've been targeting? Well, there's a multi-billion dollar brand, but I can add my own fashion taste to it and create a niche market for what I'm trying to sell. Yeah, so I think like athleisure brands are really going for the very practical, the very comfortable, because everything is like super stretchy. But the type of materials used are sometimes a little bit more plasticky, like polyester, a lot of spandex. And the idea is that those are clothes that are workout clothes. Like they, they're inspired by like yoga studios and gyms. Um, the idea with Reclaim is very different. So the idea with Reclaim is, yeah, comfort is still a big important part of it. And being able to move or like move around and like walk or run, whatever movement you need to do, like we test all the clothes for movement, but like there is a technique of sewing that is called a four way stretch where you try to put stretch in both ways of the yarn. So all our, all the clothes are made with this four way stretch. So it's like feels like yoga pants, but the aesthetic that we're going for is more of a like Italian, elegant, classy, person that is like walking down the street so like the imagery that we're going for is a little bit more classier and a little bit more sophisticated and refined than at leisure and we but the thing we have in common is like we're striving for comfort so if you were to kind of list the main aspects of include cognition what are the elements of a clothing article that is gonna provide the best comfort and the best uh, experience for someone to wear, like the feel of the material, the kind of free movements, like you said, and also the aspects of feeling like you look good or you're confident or you have some kind of a statement that you make. So there are like layers in the concepts of enclosed cognition. And the first layer is getting to comfort. Like if you're not able to walk in your like clothes or if you feel that something is itchy there's no way you can feel confident so that's like the basic layer is mm -hmm. just getting the comfort right the second layer is related to fit and feel 
So you want something that sits nicely on you, that highlights your waist, that makes you feel skinnier, that makes you feel taller. So like fit and feel, you want something that feels very soft on your skin because those are all soothing sensations. And you want to make sure that when you like pass by a mirror, you don't pause and be like, wait, how am I looking? So there is like this fit and feel second layer. And at the top of the pyramid is, and this is like the most interesting concept to me, is falling into an iconic pattern. So I'll give you an example. Northwestern scientists did a study where they had people wear a doctor coat and do a science test. The people who wore the coat performed better (laughs) on a standardized science test which is insane. Like they like for them wearing a coat just made them feel like, oh, this is scientific. <laughs> I need to use that part of my brain. I need to concentrate. And it actually resulted in a statistically significant difference where just what you wear wow. had an impact on your performance. So there are some iconic items in a women's wardrobe. One iconic item is the blazer. Like the blazer gives this sense of power, and it's associated with women in power, with like the corner office. So there is like historically in our imagination, we have a library of power associated with the blazer, same way as in the doctor situation. Like we know that who wears the coat has informa- like the scientific information. Similar thing is, for example, the wrap, the wrap dress. So the wrap dress is very iconic. DBF came up with it in like the 50s. And like when she came up with it, it was like women starting to work. That was like the uniform that women were wearing in the office, like the first secretarial job. So that wrap, like the little wrap dress has an iconic, like you didn't even notice, or like the turtleneck. Turtleneck was worn by all feminist icons in history. So if you just Google some of the big feminist names, they have like this black turtleneck. Steve Jobs had it. So in our underlying, like we don't even know this is happening in our brain, but our subconscious just associates certain outfits or certain iconic pieces with more power than others. So once you put all of this together, like making sure something is comfortable, making sure something has a good fit and feels well, and then you make it in a way that reminds somebody of like, a photo that made history or a person that was important that they might have seen on TV, you're like hitting the right point and people really like start to pay attention and notice. So so there is a science to dressing to impress. That's that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it, there actually is. And it's like, it's a two-way science. So dressing to impress that you just mentioned is what can I wear that is going to give a message to other people? And cloak cognition is more, what can I wear that it's going to make my brain work in a different way? People who wear glasses tend to leave an impression that they're smarter than people that don't wear glasses. And there are a lot of like little nuggets of obscure information on like studies that people have done. Like the color khaki, for example, gives people like reassurance and people think that customer service should wear khaki because it's makes people feel like that's color of expertise. So that is like the dressing to impress is like what feelings and thoughts can I 
make others feel about my clothing, while incognition is more like, what is going to make me feel great Jeez. and confident? You got to make a list, boys. Yeah. I think this is, I mean, <laughs> is I there guess. anything in there about very colorful tops <laughs> like this one? <laughs> no, to, to add to that, I mean, if like someone wears glasses and khakis, that's that person is like unstoppable. So it, it's just funny. merge everything. As we're on that topic, um, you mentioned something in your earlier statement about how now the trend in millennials are looking into um, brands that have meanings, you know, brands that that have a purpose, right? So what is what is Antero like? There's some brands like Lululemon who focus on like this whole entire subculture of going to yoga, you know, for these these different kinds of things. So I guess um, for Reclaim, I guess, as part of um, your mantra or, or what you're trying to achieve, what is that piece that you're offering to the millennials that that is new? So there's these pieces that we're seeing that now you're putting a more util- utilitarian aspect into your clothing, putting pockets uh, making it uh, make sense for the type of materials that you use. So we have like three big values that we want to represent as a company. And one is definitely the material. Like our chief material is called Tencel. And it's a sustainable man-made material. So when it's produced, it generates less uh, pollution than like organic. Like it's an organic fiber that it's like man-processed. It's uh, made in Germany, so it has been invented by a firm in Germany. And we source it from a German firm and manufacture it in our factories in mm. Italy. So, and like we like Tencel because it's wrinkle free, it's really hard to wrinkle it. So, it's very easy to machine wash. You don't have to dry clean it. It has a really nice stretch and it's sustainable. It's like the, one of the fabrics with less impact on the environment. So, we really like it because it embraces like the concept of reclaiming time and practicality, but at the same time, it's very respectful to the environment. And so that's one big theme, like sustainability is definitely something that we don't even see as a value, like a company that has been born in 2020 or 2019, or like anyways, this decade should just assume that has to be a sustainable Mm -hmm. company. Like it shouldn't be like a value to even advertise, like it should be a given in 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 my opinion. The second theme that we that we have, and it's important to me at least, is the made in Italy. So I'm Italian. Like I grew up in Italy. I moved to Italy when I was three months old. So I feel very, very Italian. And to me, it was very important in the manufacturing. Like I wanted the manufacturing to be in Italy. And I went through. I mean, it's of course it's easier and cheaper to go to China. And it would have been easy to go to LA or New York. It's like next door to me. I live in San Francisco. It would be, it would have been like easier to just drive there. But I was like, no, if I want to build a company and I want to make sure that I do it in Italy because that's, those are my origins. It's amazing to have an excuse and go back to Italy every now and then. But in general, it was something I felt that I needed to do as an Italian abroad. So that was a, an important value for me. And third is definitely like the female empowerment angle angle that we took. So all the things that we talk about, like we have real models. Most of them are working women in tech. All the photo shootings that we have done are with like real people, like with like real life problems, with flaws or like beautiful. Like we don't really care like how you look or like 
are you a fashion face? We want to know that like you have the right values that match an ambitious an ambitious woman that is like not ready to compromise. I I wanted to point out I was looking at your website and I saw that these crazy numbers were on there that you guys had 3073 women interviewed, 88 designs tested, 67 fabrics examined and seven staples reinvented. Basically like you said those iconic clothing articles and you guys implemented more comfortable better materials we definitely did our homework and i think stanford played a huge role in getting homework done because stanford is a very entrepreneurial mba program Mm -hmm. and one of the things that they push us to do is do ton of customer interviews and like really understanding who your customer is and what they want and then prototype a lot so prototyping was part of the DNA. I mean, we're still prototyping. Like we are having a new collection coming in next month and it's already like improved so much in our like first round. So it's a continuous process. It never ends. You just keep like every time somebody purchases, I like text them and I'm like, hey, I would love to have a chat with you. Can I ask you how you like it? And it's like part of the DNA of an early stage startup is just like, getting as much data as possible and like improving on your product. It's so interesting where the industry is going now. So people are going to have um, more versatile wardrobes. People aren't the the frequency in which they buy clothing are probably going to get less. The entire markets for uh, secondary clothing markets like Ross and let's say a TJ Maxx or something. This is not the lane in which Reclaim is trying to go in all these sustainable fashion yeah. because you won't even get to that area. Whereas fast fashion, probably a lot of their products will go to these secondary markets. Um, and they've been created for that purpose. Yeah. You know, but now the now I think the focus is so much different as we're we're kind of centered on sustainability now. Yeah, I mean like that's unfortunately how the fashion industry the moment we started in early two thousand to be more globalized. Certain markets just allowed for a different type of business model that was a volume business model, very cheap, with a lot of materials that were like chemical made, like polyester materials. And therefore, like a lot of companies that were just like picking up the trends and like generating tons of trends. That was like, I mean, all the 2000s were all about that, like really fast new trends. It was like the idea was you wanted to be fashionable. More was more like you cared about that. And I think now we're getting up less is more. Like there are some mm-hmm. pieces that are beautiful and are going to be beautiful for the next 20 years, while some that you know are going to last you a season. And like like the whole Mary Kondo situation, mm-hmm. it's very applicable to fashion. Like I don't know how often you purge your wardrobe, but on average, like a garment lasts two years in our, like like today. So that means that every two years you have a fully new wardrobe. That's a lot of clothing. That's a lot of junk that you go through and a lot of money that you end up wasting for clothes at the end of the day, you're not super happy about. Like you bought them at a sale or you bought them because they were cheap and then you put them on and like the material is fine, but it's not amazing. The fit, like it works well, but it's not like an item that you put on and I'm like, I feel wonderful. My mom has like some beautiful pieces that have like they're older than me in her wardrobe and they still look amazing. But globalization like changed the fashion industry a lot. And now we're like going through a different change. Like the past couple of years where is like are the years of social media. So 
fashion used to be a very like a very different industry. Like somebody would make a few patterns, uh, go to buyers. So they would go to like a Bloomingdale's, a Nordstrom, or like buyers of little boutiques. And then you were producing big quantities and shipping them across America without hearing what your ultimate customers think about the clothing. Like if you wanted to hear, you had to spend a day at a store and just like listen in as a designer, or you had to set up interviews. Now with like the movement of direct to consumer that we've been having since like the past 10 years, but not even that long. Like you can have conversations with your customers on a daily basis. Like every time we sell an item, we sell a follow-up survey of like, how, how do you like it from one to 10? How does the material make you feel? So we try to really like get as much data as possible and try to have conversations directly with consumers and you learn so much faster. Like I heard often women saying like, as long as I look good, I don't care how it feels. And that has been mm. like high heels. High heels are not great to wear. Like they're painful. Like that's like a trap. They're absolutely painful, but it makes you taller. And when you're taller, like you feel confident and you feel pretty. So a lot of time there was a choice. Like you had to compromise on something mm-hmm. in order to get something else. And I'm, I'm curious to see where coronavirus is going to take us. Maybe it's going to be like, I don't want to make that many compromises. Like certain <laughs> things are sacred, like 100% comfort or fit. Yeah. And on that note, you know, manufacturing is just so hard. Manufacturing a physical item to consumers with a constant data input is probably harder. So how do you ensure that the prototype that you're iterating with is representative of the product that you manufacture when you're dealing with, I guess, manufacturers in Germany and Italy, how, how, how does that whole process look like for you? You run some tests. So I'm pretty lucky because my family has a family business in fashion. And they've been mm-hmm. in the fashion industry in Italy for 30 years now. So when I decided to start Reclaim, it was a little bit easier if a newbie wants to start a fashion company. Just because my yeah. my parents had older relationship, they had tested a lot of factories, so I was able to just spend the day at my family business and just understand. Okay, those are like the best factories. This is who is, and then like it's not there isn't like a best factory. Every factory is good for something. Mm-hmm. So there is if you want to do a knit, there is one factory that is the best place to go. If you want to work with a certain material, like. Okay, woven, then it's like another factory. So like understanding the playing field, if you're, especially if you're like an American and you try to go to Italy, like most of these people don't have websites, so don't speak English. So it's hard. You have to go and like literally drive from factory to factory and try to understand. And I mean, it would have taken me years to get to the point where I got on day one because I had the fam, my family connection. Yeah. And we ended up working with a small factory outside of Florence. So we don't work with factories in Germany. We only buy the the fabric from Germany. So they send us okay. fabric from Germany. And this is the man-made but sustainable. Yeah, Tencel. Okay. It's called Tencel. Tencel. So they they help us. Like so, we buy directly. And like the way you buy fabrics, they're fabric stores. So you go in and you touch little pieces of cloth, and then you like try to use your imagination of like, oh, I have like an inch by an inch. How would this look like as a skirt? And you just like 
try to imagine how does that look. And then like you end up buying the fabric and like our factory is super nice. Like I have this amazing pattern maker. She helps me like bring my creations and my idea into like an actual physical product. And then we usually do a small same like a small sample run of like 10 pieces. And we just like wear it. We wear it. We wear it. We wash it. We try it. We give it to our friends. We give it to like the women in like the San Francisco group. So we try to give it to people and just collect the feedback. And yeah, like sometimes like you have like a quality experience that is not amazing and you change it. That's like why we're doing this. It's like our testing. Can you educate me a little bit? I, uh, again, don't have much idea and it seems like you guys are really uh, deep in this. Yeah, you don't need what? to uh, keep saying. We, we can Sorry, tell. Sorry, bro. Sorry, bro. <laughs> it's, it's how it is. It's how it is. Um, what is it about uh, Made in Italy that is so amazing? What is it? What is it? So, no, because, you know, and I've known this since I was a child, of course, like yeah. even growing up, like having a Made in Italy t-shirt will be like, damn. All right. Yeah. This is a really good. This is Italian, Whereas, bro. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's totally. Italian. You know what I mean? <laughs> there we go. Another one. You know, one of the one of our best friends actually is uh, Federico is from Milan as well. He's like the sty- most stylish guy. That's kind of a brand we Italians do have. How did that? How did that surface as the center of fashion? And I don't know if you could just give me a little bit of a history lesson over here. Once upon a time, like the fashion capital of Europe was Paris. So you had Coco Chanel, you had all the couture houses. Um, and the way the fashion industry worked was that you would have buyers go to a fashion show and you would have like producers, like manufacturers go to a fashion show and the designer would have the show and people would look at the dress or look at the pants or whatever it was, like it. And you couldn't just buy quantities. You could like buy one design and ask how many things you wanted to be produced. And you even had manufacturers who would just buy the pattern. So they wouldn't buy your dress or buy the product from you. They would just buy the idea, the creation. And then Milan came up with a ready to wear. So this is like the early like 1950s. I like, I don't want to be mistaken exactly on the date, but basically Milan came up with You can go to a fashion show and on the spot, you can just buy that piece. It's ready to wear. It has sizes like small, medium, large, and it doesn't have to be tailored onto you. So that was revolutionary at the time. So you went from a very custom made tailoring process to I can just go into the store and get out with the store, like from the store with an item, with like a garment, which it had not been seen before. So that like made like a fashion capital out of Milan. A lot of the like stores that you see today are like Rinascente, which is the big commerce like like shopping mall in the center of Milan. That was where it all started. That's where you were buying like the ready to wear items. The business school in Milan, Bocconi, was born because suddenly there was a new way of thinking about manufacturing where you would produce first and then sell later rather than like getting the like note down measures and getting the orders so the business school was built with the idea of like we need to like create a talent that can manage this new way of doing things so milan just became like the ready to wear capital and in general like I would say like the made in italy is very much related to the culture like italy is a culture that has 
a tremendous appreciation for beauty. Like it goes from, it is like so rooted in our origins. Like art is so important. Monuments are beautiful. Like architecture, everything around you is a appreciation of beauty. Like I remember growing up in Italy, I never noticed. And now that I've lived in America for so like for long and I've been outside of Italy for so long, Every time I go back, I'm like, oh, wow, there is a statue on that balcony. <laughs> and there are some, like, leaves on this wall. And like, everything is just, like, so amazing. And I'm like, I never noticed how much, how many little details are there and how everything is, like, beautiful and thought out. So, like, the, cult, like, the culture of the country is very focused. It has, like, a really good taste. It's, like, so focused on beauty. It has, like, generations of like being like the capital of art and architecture and just like in general like I think like Italy is the country with the highest number of UNESCO sites in the world so just by that it should give you an idea of like it's like an in training like you go to fashion school to learn you go to business school to learn business you live in Italy and you kind of learn beauty and it kind of becomes part of your DNA like you spend all your life surrounded by beauty you can tell what's beautiful and what isn't and there's a lot of artisans in Italy, so it's a very like part of the cultural DNA. So uh, I just wanted to touch on this topic. May or mean may not need to go deep into it, but uh, with I guess all the recent developments with the shutdowns and the lockdowns and stuff, you have been sourcing internationally from Germany, Italy. How has that impacted you? And I guess, is there like a silver lining that you are seeing right now that helps uh, get through these tough times? Yeah, no, definitely. Like COVID has been a huge disruptor to the fashion industry and to me in particular, because all my manufacturing is in Italy. And we were aiming for our spring summer collection at the beginning of March. Now it's start of May and we still haven't received it. So Italy shut down all of manufacturing to help contain the spread of COVID-19. And therefore, like all of the factories, pattern makers, like nobody was working. And we haven't like our collection has been delayed for two months now. Today is the third of May. So tomorrow is fourth May and it's like the day Italy's supposed to start reopening some of the like some of the manufacturing. But I literally spoke with my manufacturer before jumping on this podcast and like he doesn't even know like how it's wow. gonna be like. Like we're going back to the office tomorrow, but I have like an entire list of preventive measures that they need to follow. He's not sure if employees will feel safe to go back or if that's something that like they're excited to do or they want a little bit more time. So definitely the impact has been huge. Like our collection has been delayed two weeks. We are running low on inventory on basically everything because, because we couldn't restock. And it's just like scary. It's like scary yeah. because like, like made in Italy went from being our like greatest strength to one of our weaknesses because like it because it was like all stopped there yeah and I was not willing to be flexible on it I was not willing to be like okay like made in Italy is 
taking a break, let mm-hmm. me go and produce somewhere else. I'll like, and also you don't know, like you don't know, is it this going to last a month? Is it going to last two months or is it going to last a year? So yeah. a little bit not knowing and a little bit of stubbornness and national pride, I decided to just wait the storm out. Um, and now they're reopening and I'm really excited about it. But definitely COVID had uh, a much bigger impact that, like, than I expected. I wanted to jump into uh, your vast experience of working at really well-known companies, uh, for example, Uber, Google, McKinsey. Could you walk us through how you kind of maneuvered in these different positions? And I noticed you launched so many different products in different markets for different companies. And that has to be really applicable to what you're building with Reclaim. Yeah, no, for sure. So right out of college, I think that's like very applicable to people from economics or business backgrounds. But I was one of those people that had no idea what to do with their lives. So consulting seemed like a great option of like, it looks great on my resume, but I still am not choosing anything. So it was a great avoidance strategy, but it was a beautiful gym. Like I spent some time at McKinsey and it definitely taught me like how to structure my thinking, like what is important in making decisions, how to solve a problem and how to structure a problem. So that's definitely something I took on with me while doing Reclaim because all of that big picture thinking, I model all my sales, I model my seasons, I like know exactly what like numbers I need to hit. Like I start every every thinking with like a nice Excel model, a couple of slides that summarize it. And I'm not presenting it to anybody. Like I don't have a partner to present. I don't have a client, but it's just for my own sake of thinking, I love to have it all organized. After consulting, I had this phenomenal opportunity to work at Uber. Like one day I was, I remember I was working in Chicago. I was staffed there on a nightmare project. And a friend of mine called me and he was like, are you bored of consulting? I have a role that is opening up. It would be to help like start up Uber Eats in Milan and then launch it in other cities across Italy. And I was like, okay, why not? So it kind of like started and it was, it was amazing. Like I, it definitely like I loved working at Uber. Like I know people have mixed opinions, but I really enjoyed it. So especially like in a small office like Milan, like I ended up hiring most of the people that were in the office. So I had very much control over my team and the culture that we were building. It, it was a small office. Everybody fits in an open space. So it felt like a little family. So it was like, Everybody was like super young, so it it felt like you were building a company with like your best friends, and um, and we had a lot of decision making power. Like the way Uber works is like they give you a budget and they tell you get it done. I don't really care how. And this is like what leads to a lot of mess, <laughs> and this is why they had a lot of struggles. But provided that people don't do anything crazy and don't become terrible human beings, like <laughs> like. That is so empowering. Like for me, having a budget, deciding how things should be structured, putting together a team, how do we measure our goals? How do we track execution or what is success? That has been like the best gym I could possibly have had. And it definitely helped me reclaim because it's like, 
Like consulting is great, it's really big picture thinking, but at the end of the day, you need to grind. You need to sit down and you need to call a million people. You need to like do the sale. You need to improve. And like it's a day, like day after day execution game. And I think Uber gave me that um, like gym of like learning how a company that has been wildly successful and has started so many like city offices across the world does it. And then like, after figuring it out with Milan, I had the opportunity to launch different cities. Um, so it definitely like perfecting how do we launch, uh, how do we think about headcount, how do we think about unit economics on a daily basis, like what, what defines success has been great. Um, and then finally, like uh, I worked at Google and Google, like I have a strategy, like I had a strategy mixed go to market role which entailed uh, like thinking about launching product in different countries. So like some of the products that I worked on personally have been like expansions in the European market or expansions in Latin America. But that is a very different, it's like a mix between, in type of like role, it's a mix between what McKinsey used to be and what Uber is. Because like the company is so big and so many people are involved that you don't have the same decision-making power that you would have at a smaller scale startup or just as a more decentralized startup like Uber was. But at the same time, you're not a consultant. Like you need to like put together the plan and help build a huge plan and then own a little piece of that plan together with so many cross-functional teams. So I, the way I see Google as an experience is what Reclaim might become, like the learnings that Google gave me, like learnings that are going to be applicable for a future of Reclaim, like how should it be structured? How many people should be involved in decision making? So I do see that I spent significant time preparing to be an entrepreneur. I don't know if it's right. Going back, if somebody asked me, what's your biggest regret? I would probably say, I wish I started sooner. You never feel ready. You always feel like, ah, let me do something more. Let me go to consult. Let me work for a startup. Ah, let me go to business school. And then at the end of the day, you took like a seven-year detour. And when you start, you don't really know much more than you did before, or you still end <laughs> up like Googling everything. So the truth is, you will not feel ready no matter what you do. And there is a time where you just need to stop preparing and just start doing. And my start wasn't like, okay, now I am super confident and I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Like it was nothing like that. It was, it was a class at Stanford and one of the professor was Eric Schmidt, the ex-founder of Google. And literally it was like the final day of this class called Entrepreneurship and Venture Capital and different groups had to present their ideas and their business plan and like kind of like pretend it was a VC pitch. And I remember there were so many groups that were all talking about like the buzzwords of the moment, like AI, blockchain, <laughs> yeah. uh, 3D printing in the cloud. Like, like you pick the buzzwords that are on TechCrunch right now. We have uh, all the combinations of Unprecedented that. is like a buzzword now. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so I remember just like looking at all the super smart Stanford MBAs with these crazy ideas. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to go up there and like talk about retail and fashion, which is 
not unprecedented. And like, I, I remember feeling a little bit self-conscious, honestly, about it. But I'm like, okay, I'm here. That's my business plan. I'm like, I've done my homework. I want to do it. Like, I'm just going to go there and like do it. So I remember presenting. And after class, Eric Schmidt came up to me out of all the people that had great, crazy ideas. And he was like, I think you're onto something. And it's very clear you've done your homework very well. And you seem very smart. Here he goes. And he just like wrote me a check. Wow. And I'm like, uh, my company is currently the 20 slides you just saw. <laughs> like, I didn't have a bank account. I wasn't incorporated. Like, I knew I wanted to do that post-graduation. But that was like the thing that like made it happen. Because suddenly I was like responsible for other people's money and I had to incorporate and it just like accelerated everything. And that was like April 2019. And since then I've been August 2019, like four months later, I launched my first website with like a first collection of products. And it like was four months over summer that I spent in a manufacturing facility in Italy, like designing products and learning and testing. Yeah, that was like shocking, like for me. And like he invested in only two fashion companies. The other one was Tory Burch. So I'm like, okay, that must be a sign. Like I hope I have at least half the luck that Tory Burch has. So like it was definitely like one of the most amazing things that happened to me. From what I've seen and read within the fashion industry, I mean, there's a lot of copying that goes on. I kind of like sneakers and kind of. Okay, wait, hang on. <laughs> I, I, I like sneakers. and Sneakerhead over and, here. <laughs> uh, I remember going into Zara once and noticing that literally the same shoes, the same Yeezys, the same Balenciaga is copied straight up. And when you look into some of the laws that are meant to protect the IP or the designs, uh, it's pretty lax. So I guess from a strategy point of view, how do you see like this incoming competition, which basically runs the market with Zara, with, I guess, Fashion Over Now, even Gucci copies, Allbirds is suing Steve Madden. So it's like all over, like it's the whole circle. So how do you see that playing into the brand that you're building? Yeah, so copying in the fashion industry is a very big problem. Because the type of legal protection that you have over clothing design is very, very limited. Like, unless you come up with something that has never been seen before, and I'm talking about, like, technical materials or something that you can, like, patent, like a chemical composition or a different way of locking something, like a mechanism for a bag. Like, it's extremely hard for you to be able to patent a design because most of it has some roots somewhere else. Like you can say, this is this person. But then when you look at it, like, no, the same design is inspired by the Japanese kimono, or it has roots in the Vietnamese, like traditional dress. So just like establishing origin is extremely hard in a creative industry in general. So, and like, and you see, and you see that there is a trend where, like, I mean, this way fast fashion work is like the big designers do a fashion show 
and all the teams and all the colors and all the biggest designs that were on the runway that week suddenly become fast fashion pieces two weeks later. So that's kind of like how like copying in the industry is very, very common. Like people take a lot of inspiration from each other. And like designers themselves would be like, I was inspired by this historical designer or this other designer into like doing your line. Uh, this is why brand is so important. So people are loyal to brands. And if you build a brand that does resonate and like hits like some inner values of people, that's when you can like get customer loyalty. Like even if your design is copied, you want to make sure that people like come back to you, that people that are like purchase, like purchase back to you. And also like just trying to stay, like trying to stay ahead of the trend and just like coming up with like the second generations of your product and just always like being true to like this, like desire to like innovate and be better. That's like the two ways I see to like, protect against copycats like one is definitely like strive with all our efforts to just like improve on our product so like we can always have like the next generation when the like with the wave of copy starts and second is building a brand that starts resonating so that you are like i want to have a reclaim piece because that's a brand i like i like very similar to saying I want to have a piece of like another brand and I don't care if there's a copycat somewhere. Like if you like your Balenciaga shoes, you like them because it's Balenciaga, like yeah. not because you can find the same exact shoes at the department store. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. This is the first time I'm hearing of a fashion brand reaching out to the communities and making sure they iterate the product based on the problems that are talked about in that community. What really stuck out to me was that when you would get a sale, you would engage with the user. And that's something I think that's very unique in this time and place, especially um, now that uh, people are selling a lot more things online. Um, But I think that's an edge. Yeah. And you learn a lot. I remember like, my first couple of calls were very surprising to me because in my head, I was building a brand for somebody who was very much like me. So the like the customer I had in my head was a single mid twenty, like 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 driven, ambitious working woman. And then I started doing customer interviews, and a lot of people were like early moms who just had babies, and they're like. I do not feel comfortable, like, I do not feel appropriate wearing yoga pants, but I wish I could have the same level of comfort because my, like, professionally looking pants or jeans are just terrible after having given birth. So, like, the mom demographic, it was was one that I did not explore as much. And then, like, so many of my customers are early moms and they love the practicality of the product. And that, to me, was, like, I learned something new. Yeah. So you've you've lived in so many different parts of the world, from Croatia to Milan, Italy, to New York, San Francisco. What have you taken away from living in so many different locations uh, that has really uh, shaped you to the person you are today and to building Reclaim? So my travel bug is very much related to my upbringing. So I... I came to Italy when I was three months old, running away from the war in Yugoslavia. So I grew up as a refugee. 
and my family had a really hard time when we first moved to Italy to adapt because they didn't speak the language and then to reinvent themselves. Like my mom was an architect, my dad, I don't honestly remember what he was doing, but he was doing something completely unrelated. And then suddenly they're in Italy and this, the topic of like the industry to be in in Italy is fashion. So they started like their fashion company a little bit by chance and a little bit because like they couldn't find jobs without speaking proper Italian. So growing up, adaptability and just feeling outside of my comfort zone was a constant. So it was always like trying to like integrate in a new environment and just like being a third culture kid. Like I had a culture that was home in my like in my household, which was a very much a Croatian household, and then suddenly you go out and your school, your friends, your street, everything you know is Italian. And if I were like going back to Croatia, I didn't really feel at home because I'm like, I don't know these people. I don't like, I don't go to school here. So it felt very weird. And being in Italy, I didn't feel fully Italian because so much of my at home life was from a different culture. So you develop like, it's called third culture kid. You develop a third culture that is kind of like just your own is a little bit of a blend of both. And and then you kind of get the travel bug because you're like, you're so adaptable and like you can be thrown into a different country and you just kind of like figure it out in a new friends of group. You're the one who like works the room. It just like makes you a little bit more like risk averse and more adventurous just because like being outside of your comfort zone it's kind of like your comfort zone. So that to me and like traveling around the world and just like seeing how different people live and adapting to that definitely played a really big part of like reclaim because like the story I told at the beginning of like, oh, I was in this new different job and I had to figure out how to adapt. And like clothes are kind of like the first step into blending in. Like you kind of wear what people around you are wearing and you try to mimic how people talk. And I remember as a teenager, I would like pick up the clothes really fast, pick up the slang really fast because I just was so used to playing this game of like, okay, like let me blend in and like let me be part of this. And it's so second nature to me. I don't even notice. Like sometimes my friends are like, who is your true self? And I'm like, that's me. Like I like it. I don't, I don't lie. It's just how I am. Like my friends make so much fun of me because people when like people ask me where I'm from, depending on my mood, sometimes I'm Croatian, sometimes I'm Italian, <laughs> sometimes I'm both. So like so many people are confused. Where is this girl from? But like depending on my mood or who am I speaking to, I like decide how much I want to share and which nationality is easier for me to get by with. <laughs> no, we can we can all for sure relate to that. Like we all, we all speak we second languages. Yeah, we all, all of us. Uh, some of us immigrated, Judd and Shikar. It's it's. I think it's really fun having kind of like a a blend of cultures where you can kind of pick and choose which culture you want to be feeling like. And it's so hard. Like literally, like I, it was a blessing that Italy did not make the World Cup this past World Cup because I'm like I don't have to decide <laughs> who am I rooting for. Is it Croatia or is it Italy? <laughs> Like, that's the hardest when they're, like, competing in soccer against each other. That is hard. Like, the family literally divides. People, like, don't talk for two days. It's, like, it's just, like, you need to, like, like, state your allegiances. And that is particularly hard. But at the same time, like, I think there is beauty into being, like, a global citizen. Like, when people ask you, like, 
where is home? Like, I don't know where home is, but I can tell you where my favorite restaurant is and where my favorite bar is and what's my favorite street. And one might be in Paris, another one might be in San Francisco or like in Milan. But like, I can tell you so many places that make me feel good and make me feel comfortable. And I don't have a city that feels like home because it's just like I move so often and I just have so many different chapters of my life in different places. So... I think there is something beautiful about that too. And again, like I have a very fluid understanding of nationality. If you think about it, like I was born in a country that does not exist anymore. I was born in Yugoslavia. My first passport was citizen of Yugoslavia. And the country does not exist. Like it's a bunch of different countries and so many places in the world went through similar transformations. So what does it mean to be French or what does it mean to be American? Like, I think each person should define it for themselves because, like, the idea of nationality is a little bit more fluid than what the majority of the people think because, yeah, like, the country I was born in doesn't even exist anymore. So what nationality is that? (laughs) I think it's such an amazing skill to be adaptable. I think all all four of us in this call have gone through pretty similar situations and trying to integrate. Um, And it is such an important skill. Let me tell you that. And it's so amazing that you brought up clothing, um, but being the first uh, article that you kind of change, I had to change my wardrobe completely. (laughs) I mean, if you can imagine, I came from the islands. I was 18 years old. You know, I had a certain way I dressed, which was tank top, shorts, and slippers. Like that was the most basic thing. When I came here, you can't do that. that. I remember when I moved here, I was into Crocs. I'll say it. I was into Crocs. And apparently that's a bad thing now. That literally gives me pain (laughs) into my heart. I I walked in. I I thought I was stylish. And Crocs are not good. And I'm seeing people wearing Jordans. And I'm like, what is that? I I spent like literally uh, three weeks in Europe. And I changed completely. I came home with spadrils with, um, you know, different kinds of shirt. I never would have worn a shirt like this until I went to uh, Barcelona and and Mallorca. And I was just like, geez, I'm going to dress like a Spanish man. (laughs) It's it's a different thing. But culture is super duper interesting. I just think it's so cool that you brought all these things together to build a company. And it's still a part of your identity, a part of the identity of Reclaim. And I think that's absolutely beautiful. And it's something that we can connect with. And a lot of Americans can as well. Firstly, if hypothetically there's an Italy versus Croatia game, who are you going to pick? (laughs) Oh, It happened only once in my life. And we went to a betting company, like the ones where you bet yeah, who is going to win. The game. Whatever, yeah. And yeah, exactly. I don't remember the name. My brother took me and my brother put like $200 on Italy winning and I put $200 on Croatia winning. And then we were cheering for the opposite team. Okay. So no matter who won, it was a great outcome. Nice. So okay. that was kind of like our go, go with that. You're McKinsey from the start. <laughs> That's <laughs> all, strategy yeah. on luck. <laughs> That's great. Oh, yeah. No, second question is, is more like, um, so say we're, we're just about to wind up over here. But if people want to reach out to you, see the stuff you've designed or um, just follow you on social media, um, where can they reach out to you and where can they see more of the, the incredible things that you're creating? Yes, thank you so much for asking. I always forget to mention like the URLs. 
But um, uh, on Instagram, you can find me on This Is Reclaim. And the website is thisisreclaim.com. And I'm super available over emails. Like if you shoot an email at hello at thisisreclaim.com, somebody in the team will like respond for sure. Like we really care about every inbound. Thank you so much for this. I had a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Things Have Changed. Be sure to subscribe to never miss an episode and follow us on our Instagram at THC underscore pod. We're going to see you next time.